This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe and this week as Halloween looms, we're going to be delving into the stories behind witches, witchcraft, witch trials and witch marks. The latter of which have been discovered at some English heritage sites. Which leads me to introduce our guest expert for this witching hour, Diane Perkis, who's Professor of English Literature at Oxford University. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's an exciting subject. Absolutely. So, Diane, tell us what got you interested in this exciting subject of witches and witch marks. I've always been interested in the irrational side of history because I work on political history most of the time. One of the things that intrigues me is why human beings make the choices that they do. Most political historians tend to act as though everybody is making sensible, rational choices as if they were playing diplomacy. But what I've come to think is that most human beings make choices on less rational grounds than that, on emotional grounds, on superstitious grounds, and basically on defensive, fear-based emotions at that. So that got me really interested in the way that people try to protect themselves, initially how they try and protect themselves politically, but then how they try and protect themselves in daily life. And I'd be surprised if there were many people listening to this podcast who didn't have a lucky pen that they had to use in exams or a rabbit's foot that they always take to the race course. Most people have little rituals like that. And those little rituals also have a history. Very interesting. Yes. I think there's perhaps in our genetics a sort of survivability reaction taking place there. And that's probably why we want to protect ourselves from things that we fear and don't understand. That's right. And moreover, it's natural to human beings to want to create what nowadays gets called a safe space around themselves. That now means something political connected with identity politics. But when I think of a safe space, and when early modern and medieval people thought of a safe space, what they meant was a space where people couldn't enter against their wills. Now, that was practical in part because it was still a period where people could show up at your house, steal all your food and run off laughing. But it was also a period where everybody was really afraid that out there in the dark, in the cold, were entities that were themselves dark and cold that wanted to get back into the warm. And those entities were understood as a terrible threat to all living beings. Okay, so let's talk about the specifics then, not just these vaguer entities. Let's talk about witches. How would you define a witch? Well, how long have you got? It's a really complicated question because it changes over time. But at the time when most witch marks are made, a witch is someone who can do harm by wanting to do harm, by using a power intrinsic to her body or by calling on a larger, darker power in the cosmos. This is somebody who wants to harm you because she's envious, because you've slighted her, because you've been rude to her outside a shop one day, and she wants to hurt you. Some witches can do it just by looking at you and your children. 
other witches need to call on occult powers and they swap out bits of their body, basically their blood, for the service of those occult powers. And I'm being very unspecific in saying occult powers because this is where a bit of historical specificity helps. Those mm. occult powers said beings that would once have been regarded very, very generally as fairies, the darker, hairier kind of fairy who can help you with the housework or completely ruin your life if they take against you. Fairies that really are luck and that explain why some people are much luckier than others. But after the Protestant Reformation, nobody wants to allow fairy beliefs anymore because it doesn't fit with the Bible. It doesn't fit with the fundamentalist idea of the afterlife. So after that, what were once seen as fairies become interpreted as devils. So now the witch who calls on such beings is not just calling on a sort of hairy-footed local hobbity-looking thing, however nasty, but is actually summoning the powers of hell to her assistance and is therefore even more threatening than she was before, even more scary, and we need to take even more measures to protect ourselves against her. Right. Were these witches real people as well oh, yeah. I- I- through history? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you mean, did people think that they were witches? Yes, undoubtedly they did. We have many people, surprisingly, you might think, who actually come forward and volunteer a confession that they've killed someone or harmed somebody through their witchcraft, which was a bit of a suicidal act, really, but people did do it. We also know that there were people who set themselves up, as a polite term for it is cunning folk. These are people who can use magical powers to cure sickness, find missing objects, find buried treasure, and take off dark magic caused by some other witch further away. So if you've got a dark, scary witch in the village, you'll also have a bunch of people who are claiming to be able to defeat the magic of that dark witch using their magic. So you have a kind of cosmic battle going on. And those people will also be identified as witches by the elite who are doing the prosecuting and managing who gets in trouble with the law and who survives and is liked and respected. What you're describing there, is that sort of from a fictional-based scenario or is that something that might have happened in a village somewhere in England? It's something that would have happened in just about every village in England in the 16th and 17th centuries, which is the peak of the witch hunts for the British Isles. Probably before that, before the passing of the Elizabethan witchcraft statute, which makes witchcraft a much more serious and problematic crime, you would still have neighbours looking askance at particular women, usually as women in the village, who were suspected of having these occult powers. But, I mean, it's worth really laboring this point. To these people, to every ordinary person, these are not beliefs, these are not weird ideas, these are not fictions, these are knowledges, these are things that everybody just knows. And asking whether they're real or not is like asking whether Pendle Hill is real or whether rain is real. Of course it's real, you can see it around you every day, and they don't ask themselves whether those things are real. That question only becomes meaningful by the end of the 17th century, for interesting reasons. As we've established that these were real people, real women, where did the idea of witches come from? 
Well, it predates Christianity. There are ideas about witchcraft and fear of witches and witches' occult powers in the classical world, in Greek civilization, Roman civilization, and particularly Near Eastern civilization. There's a lot of Hebrew folklore concerning female demons like Lilith, a lot of carefully crafted protection spells. The Greeks and Romans have a lot of laws covering the area, particularly of love magic. One of the most terrifying kinds of Greek and Roman magic is curse magic, where you might actually invoke the power of particular deities, like most famously Hecate, but also Athena at Aquasulis, Minerva at Aquasulis, which was Bath's old name in order to cast a curse on somebody you were in love with, for example, who turned you down so that they, for instance, could never have sex with anybody else as long as you lived. And the curses are quite graphic and physical. They involve almost like a, a scary um, infibulation where it's imagined that genitals start disappearing or that thighs remain permanently stitched shut, that kind of curse. So those are features of the pre-Christian world. Most historians of witchcraft would also say that Christianity ends up stigmatizing lots of what were once orthodox pagan beliefs as themselves witchcraft. And there are some very famous examples of that. There's an 11th century penitential which advises people to tell their parishioners if they say that they've gone flying at night with Diana that they're making it up, that it was just a bad dream and that they didn't really do it. So these beliefs also end up coming under the scrutiny of theology and ultimately that is what leads to the peak period for witch trials is arguably a direct outcome of an attempt to understand where these occult powers might come from. Christians are much more restless than pagans are about where, what kind of supernatural being we're talking about when we think about amazing, beyond human kinds of powers. The ancient world's quite happy to say that it's an as yet uncatalogued minor deity, but Christianity can't say that because there's only one God. So they end up with a much, much more thorough theologization, which leads them to the idea that if it's not God, because it can't be God if it's something harmful, then it must therefore be his opponent, Satan. And this is the period where Satan and um, the theology of hell and ideas about devils become much bigger in everybody's imaginations from about the 12th century onwards. And this ultimately leads to a mentality that, you know, costs some 30,000 people their lives. Right. And that was going to sort of lead me on to my next question, which was when and why did these stories of witches and witchcraft really start to take hold in England? You talked about it being the start of the 12th century there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say that, as we understand it, there was probably never a period in England when people did not have an idea that there might be malign magic being done near them. The Anglo-Saxons certainly had lots of ideas about people, for example, reusing pagan burial grounds. The Anglo-Saxons are a Christian society, but they become quite stressed about people showing up 
at barrow tombs and pouring blood on the tomb to get dead people to appear and forecast the future for them, that kind of thing. They end up dealing with that by putting gallows on the barrow tomb hillsides so that they can consign other dangerous criminals to the same space and have all the bad guys sort of locked together in one spot. But what becomes a much bigger deal later on is the change in the law, which means that instead of going out and perhaps hiring a white witch to take off the bad magic for you, acting as an individual, you can instead, or as well, if the white witch hasn't done their job as thoroughly as you would like, you can instead go to law. You can make a complaint against one of your neighbours. You can say, she looked at me the wrong way and after that my child got sick and died. She looked at my husband the wrong way and after that he became paralysed down one side and can no longer work. A bunch of complaints that are really complaints about things that go wrong in your daily life, but that try and find an explanation for those misfortunes. People are very reluctant to accept that life's a bit random and that they're not fully in control. We see this nowadays in conspiracy theories. People just don't like the idea that they themselves are not able to decide their own fates entirely. Instead, they like to offer a causal account of things that happen to them. And that's what starts to happen from the 1550s onwards. It's connected with the Reformation. It's connected with the coming of Protestantism. So they like the idea that, for example, the illness of a family member or of a critical animal on the farm has a material cause, the material cause of old mother so-and-so who's always a bit rude and surly and who maybe only has one eye or limps a bit. That's very interesting how the person who potentially has all these physical ailments is the blamed cause of other people who are supposedly healthy and their children's later physical Mm. ailments. It's an easy blame game, isn't it? Absolutely, because what we also see is that the people most likely to be blamed and therefore accused are a category of people that are sort of surplus to social requirements that don't have a clear place in village life. They tend to be elderly women past childbearing age. And that in itself is kind of almost a philosophical problem. What are elderly women for? What are they meant to do? They can't bear children anymore. So they're kind of useless, they're kind of a waste of space, even a waste of food. Depressing, but it is that. And in addition, elderly women are just troubling, and the more ugly and poor they are, the more upsetting they are. And that's because early modern society really did believe, and this is also a medieval way of thinking, and it goes back to the ancient world as well, the idea that if you're looking at something ugly, it will sort of somehow come out in any malleable or formative part of you. And this is a period where people literally believed that if at the moment of conception, a woman looks at a picture of a black man, then the baby's skin will be black. They also thought that your baby would be covered with hair if you looked at a picture of John the Baptist. They really did explain routine birth defects Mm. um, in terms of what the mother saw. And it therefore follows that everything you see 
is something that you're allowing into yourself. So if you've got this woman with only one eye, maybe, or, you know, maybe with crooked teeth, a crooked back, limping, so an uneven gait, there is a way in which she is intrinsically making you ill just by looking the way she does. Yes, I can sort of understand that in a way. An undesirable trait to have in the uh, gene pool, shall we say, or just living in the village, bringing down the standards. Yeah, and and just sort of also more pragmatically, it's an outcome of the Elizabethan poor laws, which are a complete disaster that don't provide proper uh, support for people who don't have a family to support them. They basically put the burden of supporting old people or, for that matter, illegitimate children on the individual parishioners. And it follows that those people are much more hated and resented than they were before the dissolution of the monasteries, when some of them could be accommodated within the local monastery. I'm seeing a lot of parallels between those things hundreds of years ago to now, the the conspiracy theory thing, the the undesirables in society, the unwanted, the unloved, um, all these sorts of things. Would these witches also have been single and never married? Most of them would have been either single or by now past childbearing age. They had to be post-menopause. There's a particular kind of horror about a woman whose marriage is no longer or never was fruitful, a particular kind of anxiety about barrenness. And again, it's this idea of transmission, that if your body is barren, if you're no longer capable of having children, the underlying assumption is that you'll pass that barrenness on almost through your eyes to, for example, somebody's flock of sheep or somebody's crop or somebody's orchard or somebody's dairy and make those things unfruitful as well. Okay, I'm getting a good sense of um, the general flavour of what it was like to be the witch in the village in, you know, the Middle Ages. But what were the witch trials? Can we talk about those? The witch trials are when the elite joins in with 95% of the population and starts strongly believing that witches are a menace as well. Prior to, let's say, the reign of Richard III, because there are a couple of very big public witch trials actually involving members of the elite during his reign. Prior to roundabout then, people in the elite, the 5%, the ruling class, the ones who go to Oxford and Cambridge, are fairly chill about Maleficent witchcraft. But when it starts being theologized as proof that Satan is active in the world, then it actually becomes construable by the elite as a menace to their power as well. Mm. Um, And therefore, Richard III's reign is marked by a couple of alleged attempts to assassinate him by witchcraft. Once people start getting that idea that sitting around in the countryside are a bunch of elderly menopausal women who can, if they really feel like it, kill somebody who's themselves socially incredibly powerful and maybe has tons of retainers and bodyguards and whatnot, then the problem starts being a serious legal matter. And that's when we get first the Henrician and then the Elizabethan witchcraft statutes, which tighten up the law on witchcraft and make various kind of 
crimes that didn't really exist before in English law, like murder by witchcraft and maleficium, which is doing harm using the powers of a witch. Now, as soon as you create a crime like that, people are going to start being charged with it, unfortunately. You know, if we create a crime, which is, you know, say, gathering in groups of more than six at your dinner party, then, you know, sooner or later, somebody is going to start telling on somebody else mm. that such a crime has been committed. Absolutely. And inevitably... It then creates, and this is a very significant factor in Elizabethan England in general, it turns ordinary citizens into spies on one another. Mm-hmm. and Creates a circle of mistrust. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right, yeah. And also exacerbates anxiety massively. Because if you're sort of fairly optimistic, let's say, about the pandemic that we're suffering at the moment, and you kind of go, well, ultimately, it's going to be down to my immune system and the care I get whether I survive you're probably not going to run around sort of peeking through your neighbor's windows and counting the number of people at their party. But if you're a bit anxious and you suddenly notice that your neighbor is having maybe 10 people around every Sunday for a large party, it's going to make you feel impinged on and stressed. And you're more likely then to call up Mr. Plod and report them. And it's exactly the same with witch trials. When things start going wrong for people, they can now and they couldn't before say ah it was because of Agnes Wobster and that then is becomes a solution because if the law rids you of Agnes Wobster either just by putting her in jail or ultimately by convicting and executing her problem solved. So these witch trials when were the earliest ones? The first big English one is 1566 the Chelmsford witches They're interesting in very many respects, but one way in which they're interesting is that one aspect of what they're charged with is that they're using Latin prayers. That could easily be because they're residually Catholic, but that was a crime too in 1566. It was a sign that you hadn't fully signed up to the oath of supremacy. So either way, they kind of got you. But it's also an indication of what I said earlier about the transition from paganism to Christianity. The transition from Catholicism to Protestantism works very similarly. If you have people who are sort of hanging around in corners, doing things that would once have been completely orthodox, that are now designated not orthodox and even as mumbo jumbo and a bit mysterious, then you're also going to find that those things are starting to be understood as witchcraft, like praying in Latin, which is once completely normal Mm. and is the basis for an awful lot of healing magic in the Middle Ages, but becomes understood as a sign that you're speaking to Satan. So there's a lot of layering of meaning and adding to the sort of mythology throughout time. More characteristics are added to the character of witches. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, residual religious practice goes with the fact that most of the accused are older. I mean, if you're only accusing postmenopausal women, it's more likely that they are going to be saying prayers in Latin in 1566 than if you're accusing 20-year-olds. And it's almost like you're accusing them of not keeping up with the times. That's become a problem in itself. So when was the last witch trials then? The last witch prosecution is 1709. But don't get too happy and excited about enlightenment yet, because there are still witch lynchings. And there's a witch lynching in 1893 in the village of Longcompton. So after the law stops dealing with witchcraft, people continue to take the law into their own hands. And there's a poor woman in Longcompton who's actually stabbed to death with a pitchfork. 
and this is very clearly because she's believed to be a witch because one of the simple remedies, home remedies, if you like, for witchcraft, if you think someone's bewitched you, if you stab them above the heart, and especially if you can draw blood, that will take the spell off. So clearly that's what someone was trying to do almost in the 20th century. And I have to tell you, I still know people who believe in Maleficent witchcraft. I wouldn't go around asking all your friends and neighbours if they believe in it. But I think you'll find that some people do still have a residual belief. Yes. Um, mm, interesting. I have a friend who strongly believes that she was cursed by her ex-boyfriend, for instance. And again, it's to do with that sense of animosity and that sense of animosity being almost harmful in itself. This last one in Long Compton. Whereabouts is Long Compton? Uh, it's on the Warwickshire-Oxfordshire border. Ah. Um, I used to live there for what it's worth. It's a village that has a lot of history attached to it because it's got a big, fairly famous stone circle nearby, the Whispering Knights. Right. Um, those kinds of artefacts tend to keep beliefs alive. Nevertheless, it's 1893, long after the law will credit witchcraft accusations. Indeed, what kind of happens in the second half of the 17th century and into the 18th, what starts to happen is that judges refuse to accept witchcraft complaints. The elite turns away from the idea that there is witchcraft, but ordinary people go on believing it. I would actually tend to suggest until widespread radio, which I think is what finally puts the kibosh on it. So is it still on the statute book? No, not really. There's a thing called the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which was directly used to replace the Witchcraft Act. And there was a fairly famous witchcraft case during the Second World War, a woman designated as Hellish Nell, who was actually a spiritualist and a medium. And she was prosecuted because she was basically giving out state secrets about, for instance, the timing of D-Day. And she probably just got them from a friend in the Navy, but she was nonetheless prosecuted under witchcraft law. Helen Duncan, her name was really. So to some extent, this is still, I guess, a residual power that the state can draw on. There have been, as you probably know, campaigns to have the last vestiges of witchcraft law, which is the Fraudulent Mediums Act, abolished and also attempts in Scotland particularly to issue a free pardon to accused witches. Hmm. So there are still legal challenges going on which suggests that there's still something legal going on under that. Going back to the witch trials, they're obviously legalised by the state at yes. the time. What was the result of them? I presume the, uh, the accused yeah. uh, met their end. But other than Mostly, that? though, in fact, most English cases resulted in acquittal. Only 25%, roughly, of English witches were convicted. Oh. I say that confidently, though we don't have the complete records we'd like to have in this area. People tend to assume that if you're accused of witchcraft, that's it. You haven't got a hope. That's because they've all seen that Arthur Miller play, The Crucible. But in actuality, it's not true. Many, many people got off. However, even if you're acquitted, you could still die in jail. And we don't have very exact figures on that. But generally, what we're looking at is possibly 3,000 deaths, maybe more, not counting lynchings, not counting people who die in jail. And would they have been tried by their peers via jury system? Yep, they were tried in a jury system, mostly in assizes, basically a travelling around the assize towns. But before 
that trial takes place, some other individual, typically a justice of the peace, will have been doing the rounds of the area to try and work out whether there indeed is a witchcraft problem in the region, and if so, who's willing to testify about it. So they'll build up quite a file of depositions and also probably confessions from the accused, which will then name other witches. And then it comes to a trial. So it's a long, complicated process. Yes, a jury has to decide initially whether there's a case to be answered. And after that, what should be done and whether the individual's concerned should be guilty or innocent. Just a reminder to everyone, there were no defence barristers and no prosecution lawyers in early modern law courts. So you didn't have some attractive person from chambers standing up for you and making your points for you. If you knew nothing about the law, that was just bad luck. So broadly speaking, the anti-witchcraft movement, shall we say, lasts in law from about 1500-something to... Around about 1710, I'd say. So about 200 years? Yes, that's right, yeah. Right. And the law changes as a result of people's beliefs changing, I presume. Is that right? Just the elite changing. There's really not a lot of evidence that 95% of people's beliefs really changed until the 20th century. And there's some evidence that they didn't. And part of the evidence that they didn't is the continuing use of protective markings on buildings that strongly suggests that ordinary people still felt that protection was required. Yes, we'll get into witch marks in just a sec. But um, obviously, the mythology of witches uh, really reaches us through our language as well. A phrase that crops up in the English language is the witching hour. Uh, Can you tell us what that means and what it relates to? bit of a controversy about what that is. Basically, best defined not as a time on a 24-hour clock, but as an idea of a time where the barrier between the other world and where entities, mostly actually undead, restless dead entities, may be able to pass over from the other world into the material world. And that would include, therefore, the activities of witches and their familiars being specially licensed. It crops up a fair bit in Shakespeare. It is now the very witching time of night. And it's generally from midnight to 3 a.m. in the early modern period. The theory is that because one explanation, but it feels a bit post hoc to me, is that Jesus died at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and 3 a.m. is the opposite. I think it's probably actually to do with it being a liminal time of night between bedtime and very deep sleep. And the reason I say that is because liminal times in the year are also understood as times when the walls between the worlds are thin. The classic is the time we're going into now, generally known as Halloween. Hmm. I mean, Halloween, it's the last night before full winter, would be one way to describe it, Hmm. when the darkness is thickening. To this day, The very idea of the solstice, the winter solstice, is rimmed with a degree of anxiety, a number of popular rituals. Father Christmas is really just a sanctified chimney demon. Um, Really, I mean, very common to believe that there are scary chimney demons in the early modern period, particularly in the outer isles of Scotland, and you leave out food for them to pacify them, just like people leave a mince pie for Santa. (laughs) And of course, Um, Santa is Satan, if if you... uh... Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, the but also, 
But also in other countries than England, he's accompanied by a demon figure called in the Netherlands Black Peter, who will give you a lump of coal instead of a present if you've been naughty instead of nice. This has recently taken on a sort of series of identity politics problems connected with the Dutch Empire. But I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about the anterior figure, who is very clearly a chimney demon. He gives out coal and he's black all over because he's sooty. That's why Satan is black all over. He's not black all over racially. He's black all over because he's kind of come from the chimney. The chimney is one of the scary points of the house. And it is one of the places where you can expect potential invaders to end up landing. So if you think about how we feel about Father Christmas, we might feel he's really jolly and that he's been sort of cleaned up sufficiently by being attached to a Christian saint. But if you actually really think about a guy coming down your chimney in the middle of the night, it actually becomes less comfortable. Yes, it's almost like a burglar, isn't it, in a way? Moving on to witch marks, obviously you talked about the hearth being a potential area where that's quite scary. Would a witch mark have been left in that area? Yeah, absolutely. One of the commonest sites for a surviving witch mark in a domestic scenario is the the breast of a beam over the hearth. Another very common site is the beam over the door and also on window beams because those are all portals into the house. And so there's always an attempt to add extra guarding magic. And that's what witch marks are. Witch marks are amulets, really, and they act like an amulet. They supposedly repel maleficent entities that might be trying to enter in and take over. Yes, I was going to say we should probably explain what these witch marks are. So they're meant to deter and presumably uh, suck into a portal of some kind these evil entities. Can you describe what they look like? Well, there's actually a couple of kinds. And I agree that that, um, one kind in particular are clearly meant to trap evil entities that are trying to enter your house. And those are the ones that resemble mazes where it's assumed that the evil entity will be compelled to try and navigate their way out of a circular shape divided further by other curves and will remain trapped there because ultimately it's it's insoluble so the entity will just sort of keep going round and round and therefore be incapable of doing any harm to the people who live inside the house. So that's one kind of witch mark. The other kind, which is also very common and which is also a hard back to Catholic magic, again, is the kind that uses various sorts of holy name. So again, the commonest one is the one that uses letters like M and V that fit together in a maze-like way, but that are also a kind of Latin prayer to Maria Virgo, the Virgin Mary. So by invoking the body of the Virgin Mary that's sort of completely pure and impenetrable, you're trying to make your house have the same quality of purity and impenetrability. And those ones are simply meant to repel the evil entity. The evil entity is meant to draw back in horror and basically run off. Ah, interesting. So there's there's this push and pull thing going on yeah. according to the, to the design. Are they broadly speaking circular with a flower kind of arrangement? The circular ones are the maze-like ones. The ones that are basically like a, a very neat circle that you draw with a compass, mm. but then with a lot of sort of spirography curves in them like flower are the maze ones that are meant to trap the entity. 
and they take a variety of forms and sometimes they're painted on, but most often they're incised. So in imagination, the spirit is going to be literally sort of trapped within the curves in the wood. The Virgin Mary ones are also maze-like, but there it's pointy rather than curved. And the pointy edges and ends are meant to be repulsive. They're meant to repel rather than trap. Angular, unattractive Mm. features as opposed to sort of gamin and cherubic features, I suppose, in a way. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And But again, it's about trying to invoke an idea of picture of goodness, because if you believe that old, ugly, lame women are going to transmit their old, ugly, lame, uneven, unevenness, then you also believe that goodness can be similarly transmitted, that beauty and evenness are the best way to counter that kind of ugly unevenness. Hmm. So making a really beautiful ritual mark is itself a good protection against someone who's all on one side because they've only got one eye. Yes, that's an interesting point. Um, Is there any evidence then that architecture is influenced by that idea, the the idea of symmetry? I think of Georgian architecture particularly. Mm. Georgian architecture is more enlightenment-y, I think. But it's interesting that witch marks mostly survive domestically. And there's, there's also church witch marks, which are kind of almost a separate topic. But domestic witch marks often seem to survive best in houses that are themselves sort of crooked and uneven. Let's talk about which English heritage sites have witch marks and where they are. Let me just speak first of all to what I think is one of the most interesting, which is the Tithe Barn witch mark. So Bradford-on-Avon. Bradford-on-Avon, that's um, Wiltshire in southwest England, I believe. Yes, that's right. And what's interesting about those witch marks in a tithe barn is that, as I've been suggesting, most witch marks are to safeguard domestic interiors, perhaps at night during the very witching hour when people are sleeping within a domestic space and you want to try and make them as safe as possible. But here it seems as if... The witch marks are dedicated to trying to keep the contents of the barn safe, which is less about human beings than about human beings as wealth and above all food. And that's intriguing because one of the main ways in which uh, a witch can ruin your life is wrecking your food supply in one way or another. There are countless tales of witches spoiling butter, which sounds really trivial until you realise that butter is a cash crop and it's absolutely vital, particularly in East Anglia, for ordinary households successfully to make and sell butter so that they have cash in hand to do things like buying shoes. Now here, I suspect the potential target would have been things stored in the barn such stores are also often plundered by witches. There are several accounts of witches' sabbaths, whereby I love English witches. They don't have incredible sexy times at sabbaths. They just eat a lot. And they hypothetically have that food to eat because they've stolen it, magicked it away from the person it belongs to. So here I think what we're seeing is witches' marks that exist to prevent witch theft. And that suggests a very strong fear interference by witchcraft in really the stores possibly for a whole community. Yeah, Tithe Barn is a communal store. 
What do these stories about witches and witchcraft tell us about people's beliefs and fears of the Middle Ages through to the 1700s and even later? In a nutshell, witch beliefs are about people's lack of control over their daily lives. And to this day, people will give mildly supernatural explanations for unexplained bad luck along the lines of we had gremlins in the internet today. I think we're not actually very different from our ancestors and that as a result, for instance, of the COVID pandemic, one of the things we're seeing is an increase in conspiracy explanations for why things go wrong and an increasingly discontented and unhappy public unable to fully fathom a scientific causation for why some people are getting sick and others aren't how the death tolls are working. The science is sort of not really keeping up with people's fear. And when that happens, I think that's when we start to find that supernatural beliefs of a fairly traditional kind can step in. So I would strongly suggest that, you know, it's a time to really start thinking through the extent to which we're going to allow ourselves to be dominated by fear of the unknown or whether we're going to be brave enough as a society to say that we're not fully in control. Mm. We're not really that much different from the people who believed in witches very strongly. Absolutely not. It's often used as a sort of test case for how far we've come. So people will describe what they see as false political accusations as a witch hunt. And it's an opportunity typically for us to pat ourselves on the back. But actually, there's ample evidence to suggest that people nowadays are perfectly willing at any rate to bully and persecute those that they see as doing them harm, even if there's not really very much evidence for that actual harm. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be joined by two experts who will be answering your questions and telling us everything you've always wanted to know about English castles. It's a really important thing that quite often the reasons why castles get built are very specific for the person and the time and the place where the castle gets built. Thanks for listening. See you next time.